Good morning. First Timothy chapter 3 is where we're headed if you want to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there's one on the seat in front of you. And since no one really sat in the front row except Robin Casey, you should all have a Bible. So that's good. We've been working through a series in 1 Timothy, um, really kind of taking us through an overview of the New Testament this year. And so we began in a gospel. Uh, we worked our way through the early letters of Paul. We're in one of the later letters of Paul, 1 Timothy. He writes 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus are his final writings. We will wrap that up late this month and start the book of Revelation at the end of this month. So that'll be fun. We're, we're getting through it. Um, remembering the gospel and the teachings of Jesus. We had just studied the book of Acts on Sunday nights here, so we know we've got a clear understanding of the mission of the church, for the most part. I mean, as clear as we can get, we lose sight and need reminders, but the early, the early letters, as Paul writes to the churches and communities that he had been a part of, he is really working to establish the gospel in them, to make sure that the gospel is clear and stays clear, that no one adds or takes away from the gospel. As he moves to his middle letters, he addresses more of the concerns in the church's very specific issues. Near his later writings, he is writing to really establish strong churches. That's his heart. And so as he writes to Timothy, his disciple and student, his son in the faith. He is writing to him while Timothy is pastoring the church in Ephesus, a church that Paul spent three years starting, planting, discipling, handing off, raising up elders and handing off to them. And then they were in need of some things, and so Paul sends Timothy. He's his most trusted partner in the gospel. He sends them back there, and he says, listen, put things in order. I want you to put things in the church in order. And so we pick up in the middle of the letter today, which is actually where Paul tells us why he's writing this letter. So I want to put a main idea on the screen for you. Behavior in the family of God. So Paul gives the purpose behind him writing today. He exhorts the local church to live as a family whose head is God and reveal the living Jesus to the world. So that's his idea. That's why he is writing this letter to Timothy for the church in Ephesus and because of God protecting that and keeping that and applying that to us for us today. That we would learn how to live as the household of God, as a family with God as our head. And that we would proclaim and show the living Jesus to the community that we're in. So 1 Timothy 3, we're going to pick up in verse 14. If you're borrowing a Bible, it's page 992. I'll make it easy for you. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that... Now, he's going to tell us why in just a second. But he says, listen, I desire to return back to Ephesus. I want to be there with you. Now, we're not exactly sure when he's writing this. He might have been in another city establishing a church there, sharing the gospel, training leaders. He could have been one of the times he was arrested, but he is writing this. And as he writes it, he won't make it back to Ephesus. He doesn't know that yet necessarily, but he won't make it back to Ephesus. And so he will be imprisoned in Rome, and then eventually he will give his life for the gospel. But as he writes this letter to his like number one student, his son in the faith, as Paul calls him, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you just in case. I want to get this written down. I want to give it to you. It's so important to me 
that we establish the church, that it lives on beyond me, that the local church, the very thing that Jesus chose to create, that this is so important that I want to write it to you. I want you to, to understand this just in case I can't make it back. Really good news for us because he writes it down. We get that today. But so important to Paul that he is unwilling to risk him not being able to return. And so he wants to capture this and write it to Timothy. So starting again at verse 14. So I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So I hope to get back to you, but this is so important. I want to write this to you. I want to capture this for you. I want to teach this to you. I want you to understand this. And he says, listen, I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, he chooses the word household there, the Greek word you hear oftentimes, oikos, that it has more to do with the people inside who are, married or who are uh, related either by blood or by marriage, right? And when I think of my closest relationships in human beings, the one that I'm married to is the closest, right? So there's the start of that family. And then, of course, our blood relatives, whether for you that's whether you're married or single, if you have spouse or if you have children, if you have grandparents, whoever it is. But inside that, that oikos, there would also oftentimes be multiple generations. Maybe you have that, maybe you don't. But they would exist inside this household. And so when Paul chooses to use the word household, he is choosing strategically what to call them. I want you to understand, he says, that you're a household, the household of God. That you exist as a community of family. As he writes to the local church, he says, I want you to understand who you are. So I'll put this note on the screen, the household of God. So Paul calls a local church the household of God. We are to understand that as being connected by familial ties, family ties, like marriage or blood, to one another. Now this is something we're leaning into right now in this church. What does it look like to be a family with the people in the room? What is God calling us to in this relationship called the local church? One of the things that we took away from our study through Acts is how integral, how important, how valued the local church is in early Christianity and, and should be in all of Christianity. So as Paul is writing this, he's writing to a pastor who's functioning like a lead pastor, a lot like I function here, except he's really writing it to the whole church. It's as if God gives something to me, the idea is not me, it's you, it's us. And that's what he's doing through Paul to Timothy. And so he says, listen, here's the reason. Here's what couldn't wait. I want you all to know how to behave in the household, the family, the local church body of God. And this household part reminds us that we are related to one another. We're spiritual brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, whatever we might be, with God as our head. Right? Probably through most of the New Testament, we are told that we are Christ's body and he is our head. Same idea. Right? With God at the top, we become the family of God. Now consider that and consider the way that we relate to one another in our local churches. I know some of you go to other local churches. Really glad to have Valley Christian here again. And we had the middle school handbells last year. We have high school handbells this year. So you can rub that in your sister's face, right? That's the one thing. So 
But we love being a part of this community. But Valley Christian isn't my church. Generations is my church, right? I'm called to be a family here and then serve in our community, live in our community, and, and, and kind of extend that, of course. But there's other local churches. And that local church body is called to act as a family. The images that even the Bible gives us that we're using this morning, a body. All these parts that I don't feel like I have any extras. Maybe a little extra weight, but you know, right? The parts are all there. I have 10 fingers, I'm not willing to sacrifice one if I don't have to, right? That all our members of our body, they work together. That they come together, they work together, that they serve together, they, they end up doing the job that I'm calling it to do. And that our, our church family, the household of God here, Generations Church, or you and your local church, are called to be a family with one another with God as your head. You're not the only family of God, clearly, right? But you're called to be a household, work with one another, and understand that relationship. So he says, here's how you're to behave. And so here's what he's told us so far. He's warned us against false teachers. He's told us who Jesus is and why Jesus came. He's given us order in our corporate prayer life, our gathered life when we pray. He's called out especially men to pray, saying that there is a lack of men praying and leading in the church, so much so that women had risen up and taken the roles that men had abdicated, and so he calls that out. He's talked about qualified leadership, elders and deacons, and that gets us to this point. He's been telling us how to put order in the church or how to behave in the household of God. What do we do when we gather? How do we relate to one another when we're not gathered together? How often? or how, What does it look like to be a family together? So verse 15 again. He says, if I delay, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So all that, that household family idea. Now here's what he says. Which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Now, the word church there, we use the word church. The original word there, ecclesia, means the assembly. This goes back into Judaism, that they would have an assembly, that they were a part of a covenant community. They were not just a part of Israel, the covenant nation or people, but they belonged to a synagogue, or they belonged to the temple. They belonged to a smaller community. And what they did was, when they, when they would gather, they would assemble, and it's that version of this word. So first, you're to be a family. We are to be a family. If you're here from another church, you're to be a family with your local church. And that you need to find a local church, be invested in a local church, that it takes much more to be a family, a household, than showing up once a week, right? That you have to be invested in that small community called a family, a body, a local church. And then he says, and listen, it's important about how you assemble, how you gather. That's what the word church means. The word church has never meant the building, although we treat it like that. But church actually means the assembly, the gathering together, that you are a part of the body of Christ. And when I say the body of Christ, the local church, not the global body, we can't participate in the global body very well. It's very hard to love one another in the global family of Jesus who lived before us and who will live after us. It's hard to forgive one another and bear with one another and encourage one another, as Scripture says. So the body is always the local church. That you are members of the body. You're not the body yourself. You are members of the body. And that's where church membership comes from. That you belong to one another. 
Again, the example being body. Or household, that you are a family member of God. And so he says, we are the church. We're the assembly of those people. But the assembly of the living God. God often differentiates himself in the Old Testament and then Jesus in the New Testament as the living God. I remember three years ago or so, right before COVID, we were in the book of Isaiah. In fact, we finished it after COVID. And God would speak through the the prophet Isaiah, listen, I want you to tell the people to to ask their, their idols, their gold and silver and wooden idols, ask them to tell them the future. He goes, listen, they can't do that. Ask their idols to tell us the past. Like God gets legitimately sarcastic. Probably where I get my spiritual gift, right? (laughs) Hey, tell your idols to tell us anything. You can't. They're mute. He says, because you made them with your hands. Why do you now worship them? He says, I am the living God. And then he tells us what's going to happen, and then it happens. He says, you're the household of the living God, right? We are the body of the living Christ that differentiates us from any other faith, that Islam does not have a resurrected leader, that Buddha is dead and buried, or whatever he is, but we serve a living God. And that you are the family, local family, right? I have a family, you have a family, we live in separate houses, we do our separate things, that kind of family, like that we are the family of that living God. And that we should assemble regularly, he says, And then he says that we are a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So a household, a gathering, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And notice he says a pillar and buttress of the truth. Not the, you're not the only, you're a pillar and buttress. You should be the strength of the gospel message, that your church should show Christ to others. So as he writes to the local church, Mid-letter, he finally gets around to why he is writing. It's consistent with what he's already said, but he wants them to learn how to behave as a family and understand the value of gathering, regular gathering, not weekly gathering. But that we would understand we're a family, and in order to do that well, we must gather regularly, whether that means on Sundays and in community groups, or we had a, a bunch of people. By the way, just thank you to all of you who showed up yesterday um, for the cleaning day. We had a great turnout, did a lot of stuff, and so just from me to you, thank you. But it's being that family together, and lots of folks showed up with that sense of, I belong to the family, it's our job to keep our place clean, Right? And so he says all this and calls us a pillar and buttress of the truth, that we would be a support of what is true, that we would show the truth to the world around us. So important is the local church that Paul always writes to them or writes to the leader of. Even John, as we get to Revelation at the end of this month, Revelation 1-4, John's to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace, from him, any Jesus who is and was and is to come, right? I'm writing the seven local churches, he says. I'm writing this to all of you. Jesus has spoken to me. I'm writing it down. I'm sending it to you. Most of you know this, but Revelation was written as a cyclical letter that would be read in this church and then copied and read in this church and then copied and read in this church, and the original would keep passing around, but he's writing to the churches, He addresses each one of the seven churches individually. Some of them, he doesn't even have anything nice to say. 
Some of them he praises. Some of them he warns. Some of them, again, he has nothing nice to say, but he still chooses to speak to the church. He doesn't go in the places where the church is struggling or failing and go around the church and speak to individuals. He speaks to the church. Strength, weaknesses, all of it continues to reveal himself. Jesus continues to reveal himself to the church, the local church. Doesn't matter if you're at a gigantic local church with thousands of people, looks like a small city, or if you're here, if you're a little tiny kind of country church or little church down, it doesn't matter. Jesus chooses to reveal himself to the church, that we would then reveal him to the community. That's that pillar and buttress of the truth, that we would be a support of who Jesus is to the community that we live in. Verse 16, Paul says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. I want to pause there. So Paul is writing to unwrap a mystery to us. In other words, something that is often misunderstood or misused. He says, I want to write to you about the mystery of godliness. So this particular mystery, I want to to explain something to you, Paul says, that has been misused or misunderstood about how to become more godly. Now, if this sentence, you know, stopped and it turned the page, and I can imagine myself pausing in my brain and reading this and saying, I want to explain to you the mystery of godliness. And I would think, okay, I'm going to turn the page, and Paul's going to say, listen, you really need to get up earlier and pray more. Sound fair? Come on. You know you think so. Or you should read your Bible more. That touch anything else better? All right. You should do this, or you should stop doing this, right? That's what I feel like I would think if I just needed to turn the page and I gave myself long enough to think about it. I think that's what I would think. Yeah, what do I need to do to be more godly? I think if you're honest with yourself, we tend to go that direction. Let's hear the whole thing. Verse 16. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory... Here's what he says. Here's the secret to becoming more godly. He, oh, he starts telling us about Jesus. Here's the mystery. Here's the thing that you guys have been missing, Paul says. Here's the thing that maybe you misunderstood. Maybe I wasn't clear the first time. Now, I don't think Paul said that, but he was probably pretty clear. But here's what you're missing. Here's what you're misunderstanding. Here is the key or the mystery to godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Now, we all know that he is Jesus, right? That Jesus was manifested in the flesh. Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. That's his answer to how you and I are supposed to be more godly, is Jesus. Here's what he does. He doesn't give us an action item list a thing of things to do or understand or learn, although all valuable. He says, here's the key to godliness. Here's the mystery to godliness. It's Jesus. I'll put this on the screen for you. The mystery of godliness. Paul teaches us that godliness is not found in what we do, but in who Jesus is. Having a strong confession of who Jesus is fosters holiness in our lives. When I say a strong confession, a strong like confessional understanding, like we could describe who Jesus is, who Jesus is and what he has done, that we, we could state that clearly, that we would know it deeply. 
that having that strong confession of faith around who Jesus is and what he has done is the very thing that creates and fosters and grows holiness in our lives. He doesn't say, hey, stop doing this bad habit over here. Don't do this thing over here. Start doing this thing over here. He says, lean into who Jesus is. The distinction of the gospel is not our efforts, but who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf. Holiness comes through Jesus, not through me. It's not found in what I do, but in what Jesus has already done. That holiness is found in Christ. So let's read that again, verse 16. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now you'll notice in your Bibles how that's written. Obviously it's not. There's a break from the regular paragraph. Right? I won't put any students on the spot, but they know for sure in class I would say, what's that tell us, right? And it breaks from regular writing. And one of two things is inserted here, and we would just call it poetry. It is either a hymn or a creed, right? That this is something that the church in Ephesus is used to repeating, right? That this is something, when he quotes it, that isn't new to them. He's like, remember what we proclaim. I was thinking about this, and if you were raised in the Reformed church, and I asked you, you know, what is your one comfort in life and death, right? I know Murph's dying to answer that question, right? <laughs> Heidelberg question one, right? What is your only comfort in life and death? My only comfort in life and death that I am not my own, right? That I am Christ's. It's a long answer, but we know that it prompts this thing within us. If you were raised more Presbyterian, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? We know this. We know this because in our traditional settings, in our churches, in our backgrounds, we've been taught that. Something is being lost in the modern culture of church today, that we've lacked catechizing our young people. So the same way, we've missed repeating ourselves to the point of we know it by heart, and yet we haven't stopped that in math. I mean, that's the way I learned my times tables, right? Two times two, two times three, like we memorize it. Same idea with our faith. He is quoting something they know already. And either it's a hymn they sang or a confession they use or something, but he's quoting something that he says regularly that reminds them of the living Jesus. I share the gospel every Sunday here on this stage, and it sounds almost exactly the same every single week. Church will tell you that for sure. My wife will also tell you she can share the gospel really clearly now because she's heard me do it for 20 years the same way, over and over. That there's a God who created you and loves you. He designed you. He is the one who knows how you are made to be. And that you were created to be a worshiper. That your life, I don't mean just singing songs or listening to beautiful handbells, but you were created to be a worshiper. Your life is created to bring glory to God. That that's our design. And that when we live outside that design, we break who we are and how we function, right? You don't go off-road your minivan. You join the rest of us, you buy a Jeep, right? <laughs> Otherwise, you're really beating up that minivan. That there's a way we're created and that sin has entered in. Our sin and the, and the sin we've inherited that broke how we are. 
So sin enters into human history through our ancient parents, and then we're born, and we join in sin, and we add sin to sin. And the world that we live in is so broken with all of our sin because we continue to add sin on top of sin on top of sin that we are so separated from God that there is no way we can return. And so God in his grace and his mercy says, you'll never make it back to me. I will come to you. And so Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he who was in creation, who created the world alongside God and the Holy Spirit, one God existing eternally in three co-equal persons, that Jesus becomes flesh. And he lives the life you and I have lived, but he does it without sin. That he goes on to live the life of being a full worshiper of God, that everything that he did brought glory to God the Father. And that in that, he becomes not only the perfect man, but the perfect sacrifice. That Jesus would hang on a cross to be our mediator. You can see the imagery that between a holy God and a sinful humanity is Jesus. Literally, between heaven and earth hung on a cross is our Savior, our mediator, Jesus. And then he dies for our sins. He dies to cover and pay for the penalty for our sins. But death can't hold him. He is resurrected back to life. And the gospel for Paul really picks up speed in that moment. Because everybody dies. Now, now perfect sacrifices don't always die, but everybody's going to die. For Paul, the point worth noting is that Jesus rose from the dead. That he is alive today. That angels have seen him, that, he, that humans have seen him, that he is being proclaimed in the world, that the world is coming to faith knowing the Jesus who is alive. So we say you're the body of the living Christ. We worship a living God. Worship a God who is alive, not just lived, but is alive. You see, if Jesus just died, even if he was perfect or if he was everything we needed, but he just died, we could be forgiven, but there'd be no new life. See, there's new life in the resurrection. The message of the gospel is that you have been given new life. If you're in Christ, that you have been given new life. And so when Paul quotes these pieces that obviously mean something to the people in Ephesus, be it a hymn or a creed of some sort, they know it, and he's emphasizing the resurrection and even the glorification or exaltation, Jesus ascending back to heaven where he is today. That's what we'll see in Revelation, by the way. Spoiler alert, if you will. That's what you get to see. Jesus now, today, who he is now. Not some mystery code to unlock the future. Who Jesus is today is the emphasis of that. The revelation of Jesus Christ to John the Apostle. John writes to these churches to reveal that to them. So Paul is highlighting the living Jesus. He moves on to 1 Timothy 4, starting in verse 1. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. Now, here's what he says. There was a common understanding, either through the teachings of Jesus or through the teachings of the apostles or something, that the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, that God had said already that there would come a season where people would fall away. Now, it might be something unique that had happened that somebody had said that was what they knew. It might have been directly to Ephesus, for all we know. Or it could have been, as Jesus taught while he was alive, that people would fall away. Right? That some who were there for maybe wrong reasons 
would eventually feel the pressure of living for Jesus, and they were not really in Jesus, and that they would fall away. Or even people who are in Christ still struggle and wander. And so Jesus even tells us this. So he says, listen, the Spirit has expressly said that in later times, some will depart the faith. Later times, meaning this life, right? He's writing to them, and in his very next verse, he's going to talk about people that are alive in that day. So we don't have to leave this later times and think of something in the future, because we know plenty of people that struggle with their faith today. We struggle with our faith today. He says, listen, we know the Spirit has said that during this church era, the thing that we're still living in, that they lived in, the thing after the ascension of Jesus and before the return of Jesus, that people will struggle with their faith, that people will be misled. Let's read it again, verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Here he uses the word depart in another translation, in the NIV, in fact, it uses the word wander. Now, Paul will use this same kind of language again at the end of this letter in chapter 6 when he says, some have swerved from the faith. So some will wander or depart, and some will swerve out of the way. And he just, he, re, he reminds us that there are ways, there are times where we think we're following Jesus, and then maybe we take our eye off the ball. Then maybe we lose sight, maybe we lose fellowship, maybe we're having a hard time finding a local church, maybe you move or COVID closed a lot of churches, whatever it might be. And that sometimes people struggle in that setting and that they wander away or, or things creep into their lives or they lose a, you know, a loved one and something kind of causes them to wander away from Jesus. He says, listen, it's gonna happen, people are gonna wander away. Later on, he says, people are gonna swerve, like they're gonna intentionally jerk the wheel. Like we're turning away from Jesus. Very, two very different settings. Two, two also that are very true. Some of us wander by accident. Some of us wander on purpose. But he reminds them, listen, here's what happens. Remember how to live in the family of God, the living God. Learn how to assemble, how to be together. Learn how to be that family Right? You should be a presentation of Jesus, a, a pillar and a buttress of who Christ is to the world, the living Jesus. When you do that, you are likely not to wander or turn away on purpose. But when this is missing, a lot of this tends to happen. See, our faith is hard enough when we're doing it the right way because we're still involved, broken and sinful and incomplete as we may be. Our faith is hard enough when we gather. Our faith is hard enough when we have a family of faith around us. But struggles really come when we don't. So from me to you, especially if you don't attend here, attend somewhere, belong somewhere. Be a family with someone, for sure, a, a local church somewhere. Because this faith is hard enough to live on its own. And so he talks about those who will wander. In verse 2, he says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. He moves to this place, and he's going to give a very specific example of something that is taking place in Ephesus right now for them. He's using an example of what's really going on with them, and he did this earlier 
And he does this all throughout his letters. When he writes to a church, he uses specific examples from their setting. That doesn't mean that setting is the worst thing or that it's not true everywhere. He just chooses the things that are relevant to the church that he's writing to. And there are people that are false teachers, just like he spoke about in the first chapter, that are misleading people, and it is causing them to wander away because their conscience, he said, their consciences are seared, that sin has hardened their heart, and they're being misled. And he will go on to talk about the examples, but if you just look at the examples, those who forbid marriage, require abstinence from certain foods, blah, blah, blah. Here's what's happening. They're forgetting where holiness comes from, and they're transitioning to a holiness that comes through works. Right? We just said this earlier. We'll put it back up. Mystery of godliness. Paul teaches that godliness is not found in what we do, but in who Jesus is. Having a strong confession of who Jesus is fosters holiness in our lives. Right? That when we lose sight of who Jesus is, and it's what he has done that transforms me, and we, maybe we buy into something else, and we find ourselves over here thinking what I do or don't do is what's going to make me righteous, then we end up getting misled. And some people would do that, he says, even on purpose. And some, th- some people will hear that because their hearts are hard from ignoring God, from allowing sin to live in their lives. And again, this faith is hard enough to live even when we're doing it right. Not that we will ever do it perfectly. Not in this life, at least. But when we allow sin to creep in, or we allow ourselves to be isolated from the local church, when we just attend but we don't really belong, when we don't invest in and participate in and come alongside others and figure out that, hey, the people that sit over here, their family also with the people that sit over here, and we need to figure out a way to cross paths sometimes. And that we, generations, that we love to partner with others in the community. Every week, we pray for another gospel partner in the community, be it a local church that we partner with, an organization, or even Valley Christian, that we want to be in prayer for others. We know we're not the only family, the only body. We're not the only assembly gathering church, but we know we are one, and that we partner with others and this work that Christ calls us to. So he gives this example, but I just want to close with what we already read. Roll back up to verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15. He says, if I delay, I'm writing this, so that you may know how how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Paul gives us three things that we can do to guard ourselves and our hearts from being that one who either wanders or eventually turns away on purpose. Here's what he does. Here's the first one. We'll put all three of these up. Gather, assemble. The New Testament word for church means assembly. We are the local church when we assemble together. Together we grow strong, apart we grow weak. You're a member of the body of Christ, Paul says over and over again. At least three or four letters he writes that exact phrase. You are members of a body, a local body, a local church. You're not the local church. You're not the body. You're a member of the body. right? You're not the body isolated. You're the body together. And who he writes to is the local church. 
Remember that there's something powerful about gathering, assembling together, has been all along. That God knows that when we gather together, for any of you that have been barbecuing pre-maybe gas or whatever else, you get those charcoals all hot, you spread them out to cool them down or to adjust the heat, you know you can leave that pile together and they'll all burn and stay very hot, and if you take one and isolate it, it'll die and they'll still be hot. There is something that we are created to do in the assembling together in the household of the family of God. The second one is confess, or no, I'm sorry, belong. Paul calls us to move beyond attending to belonging. He calls the local church a household of God because we have been included into a family in or through Christ. You're called to do more than attend. And if you attend somewhere else, it applies to you, somewhere else. You're called to belong, to participate, to serve in, contribute to, called to be a part of a family. In a family, everybody's got their role and they pull their weight and they do their thing. It's age appropriate or maturity appropriate or ability appropriate. But we're called to do more than attend, but rather to belong as a family. The final one is confess. The local church must center all preaching and worship on who Christ is, not what we do. Transformation comes from what Jesus has done for us and in us. He says, here's the mystery of godliness. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what Christ has done on your behalf. Let me tell you who Jesus truly is. That is transforming. That will lead to things that you should no longer do or you should embrace doing. That's true. But godliness flows from who Christ is and how he works in and through your life. How is our confession of faith? How is our understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done? Our godliness is rooted and attached to that. We often say here, we don't have belief problems, or we don't have behavior problems, we have belief problems. That right belief, right understanding, right understanding who Jesus is and what he has done will change who we are. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for our time together. I thank you for... Our friends from Valley Christian, I thank you for the opportunity to have some of them have been here last year and come back this year. And just to even see the growth and advancement, there are more instruments here and more techniques used this year. Uh, we love to watch that. We get to participate in these young people that are growing up. And then we get to hear about how they are also growing in their faith through Valley. So I thank you. I pray for the churches that are represented here. I think of some of their leaders. I know, I think of Pastor Jordan, Lord. I pray for him as they're meeting right now. Some of his folks are here. God, we bless them. We pray for them. We love them. We love our partnerships in this community. Help us to understand we are a body. We come together. We're a family, a body, a unit together. And that we are strongest when we understand that and we live that way. And that's when we can come alongside other bodies, other families that are in you and serve our community together. So help us to learn. It's not what we do, but what you have already done, Jesus. It's not about who we are or aren't. It's who you are, Jesus. That transforms our lives. That calls us to different behaviors. But it also empowers us to change. That the mystery of godliness is found in you, Jesus. Not in unlocking some do's and don'ts for me, for us. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is the authority for all things about our faith. 
and that you have preserved it without error. And Lord, we love you. We thank you that you still speak to your church today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.